I do want you this morning to go to the book of John, uh, John chapter number one, uh, so you would find the beginning of what is referred to as the New Testament. You'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four uh, guys telling their story of Jesus and his life and ministry. And we get to begin this morning the, the book of John, and this is the life and ministry of Jesus as told by his best friend. So this is uh, for a better part of a year, we'll open up the book of John and we'll walk through this kind of uh, just verse by verse, piece by piece. We'll, we'll bite off chunks of it each and every week and we get to open up the Word of God and learn about the Son of God for the better part of a year, which is awesome. I'm excited about that. I hope that you're excited about that. Uh, our goal on a Sunday morning is just to magnify Jesus through worship and the Word. Uh, we've already done some of that through worship and singing. I hope that you caught kind of that theme this morning that it, if you've missed it, Jesus said, by the way. Uh, I think we said that a time or two already, and uh, we'll continue to say that as we sing a bit more, but through worship and the Word. We just want to magnify Jesus and hold Him up, so we get to do that as we study through the book of John, which is, which is awesome. And the author of this book, John, was a lot of things. I could spend a lot of time talking about his, his life. If you don't uh, know him, I think the most important thing to know about John, the author, is that he was one of Jesus's nearest and dearest friends. I would argue that he was his, his best friend. So Jesus had a lot of, of followers, uh, but not all of them were part of his inner group, which was the 12 disciples. So you would have maybe a Mary and a Martha who loved Jesus. They followed Jesus. They worshiped Jesus, but they weren't part of the 12 disciples that traveled with Jesus 24-7. Inside of that group of 12, you have three guys who kind of rise to the top of the inner of the inner. They are Jesus' closest companions. Their names are Peter, James, and John. And out of those three, I would argue that it's abundantly clear from the Bible that John was the closest companion to Jesus. That humanly speaking, Jesus' best friend while he was on this earth was John. So Jesus' best friend is going to tell us about him. And, and you say, uh, you know, didn't, didn't Jesus have all those guys were his friends? Didn't he love them all? Well, he did, but his relationship with John was special. And so much so that when Jesus is taken to the cross, that all the other disciples leave, but John is at the cross. And Jesus looks at John and says, buddy, take care of mom when, when I go. And when you're on your deathbed and you assign the care of your mother to somebody, that's someone who's special to you. And that was John. And John is a man who lived uh, longer than the rest of the disciples, history tells us. And he is late in his years and he is writing the book of John, which follows kind of after as far as the time they were written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke would have written before, years and years before the book of John would have been written. All of them are about the life of Jesus, but the book of John is unique. 90% of the material in John is actually unique to the book of John. Material that we would not know these stories about Jesus had, had, do, had we not had the book of John. So uh, what I find intriguing about this book before we begin our study of it is to understand the purpose behind it. And I just want to read the verse at the very end of the book of John. John says, here's the reason why I wrote all this stuff. I'm going to give you my intention and I'm going to give you my purpose, which helps us walk through this every single week. Here's John 20, verse number 31, just plain as day. These things are written. What things are written? Well, chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and all the rest of them. These things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing ye might have life through his name. He says the, the whole point of this is, is to bring about belief 
and when you have belief, you'll have life through his name, or those that you do believe that, that you'll continue to experience and learn what it means to have life through the name of Jesus. So we get to, we get to unpack this piece by piece by piece, which I am uh, frankly giddy about to begin this study of the book of John. It's a long book. It'll take us uh, quite a few weeks to get through. We'll peek our head up and take a break from it occasionally on, on different occasions. But for the better course of a year, we're just going to walk through this piece by piece, which if you're new to Harvest is our preferred way of studying the Bible and preaching. If uh, we do it other ways sometimes and topical, but if you're not used to it, then hang tight. You'll see what we're talking about. Just going word by word, verse by verse, piece by piece is how we love to do it. Uh, so before we begin John 1, I'll give you a quote from Martin Luther, which I think is fitting. Martin Luther said that should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures in only a single copy of the epistle to the Romans and the gospel according to John, escape him, Christianity would be saved. What Luther is saying is that if you, if you had to, to take away all of the Bible and I could only have two books, I would choose John and Romans. This is why many Christians in, in publishing houses will publish a John Romans. They'll, they'll publish those two books because to get the core essential truth claims of Christianity, really you can find them all contained in these two books. So we get to walk through this one uh, this year really, which I am just elated about. So let's read the first 13 verses of John. Uh, I'll pray, we'll have uh, some more music, and then we'll begin to understand these first 13 verses. So here we go. John 1, verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, but darkness comprehendeth it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now he's actually talking about a different John in the Bible, John the Baptist now. So here's John the Baptist. This John the Baptist came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He, John the Baptist, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That Jesus was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Uh, frankly, there's more theology contained in the first 13 verses of John chapter 1 than a lot of Christians consume in a year's time. And uh, there's, there's so much here, but I think that we can really categorize this into three big categories. Uh, I'm just going to call it the logos, the light, and the life. We're going to use these three uh, big descriptions of Jesus and who uh, Jesus' best friend introduces us to and says, here's who he is and here's how I see him. Uh, he will go through the course of his gospel to explain why this is factually accurate and why what he's telling us from the onset is true, but he's just going to give us just right out of the gate, just bold truth about who Jesus is. And we get this kind of profile of Jesus. You know, Jesus doesn't have a Facebook profile or a LinkedIn profile. So if you want to know, you know who he is, when, when was he born, what's his prior work experience, all that sort of stuff, you actually have to go to the Bible. And you'll find that here. You'll find this kind of profile built of Jesus in John chapter number one. So here he starts with what I will call the logos. That's actually a Greek word for word. He calls Jesus the word in the first few verses. Uh, but the Greek word for that is logos. And he gets right to work in the beginning of, uh, of John chapter 1. And here's how he starts. In the beginning 
Now, those words sound familiar at all? If you've been around church any length of time, you know they sound familiar, and it would have grabbed the attention of a Hebrew person immediately because this is exactly how Genesis 1 starts. But notice the title that he gives Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, why the Word? Why the Logos? Why would you call Jesus this? Why would you give him this title? So we have to unpack this a little bit because a first century person would have got this pretty much straight away, but we have to understand a little bit of what John's saying and why he's saying it culturally. So uh, the word is, is, understand there's this time where John's writing, first century, that is dominated by Roman rule. So Rome is the, is the world superpower at the time, but when John writes, it's, it's not a Roman culture that is really baked into everyone. So before Rome, there was the world superpower of the Greeks. And the Greeks were much better than all of their predecessor world powers or even the Romans at taking their Greek culture and infusing it into the cultures of the places that they created. Uh, there's actually a, a word for this. If you read history books or things like that, they would call it Hellenizing, or you could say that they lived in a Hellenistic culture, which means a Greek culture. The Greeks were, were masters at making people learn their language, of bringing their art, bringing their theater, bringing their philosophy into the cultures that they assumed or that they conquered to, to make them their own unique thing, but thoroughly Greek. So when John is writing, he is, he's really unique here. He's a Hebrew guy, and so was Jesus, who lived in Israel, but you also have this Roman rule and, and some Roman culture, but you also have undergirding it all, the previous Greek culture, and this is, is meant to attack what many of the Greeks would have thought. When he uses the term logos or word, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. This is actually why the New Testament, the language that it was written in originally was the Greek language. You say, why not Italian? The, the Romans were ruling at that time. Well, because the Greeks were so good at putting their culture everywhere that Greek was kind of the common tongue of the day. So John writes and he says, this is the Logos. What does this mean to, to just the culture at large? Well, here's what it meant. The, the Greeks wanted to approach life and wanted to approach God through philosophy. Philosophy was essentially their religion. They had a lot of mythology, but they loved philosophy. So much so that if you studied philosophy, you know that you would have kind of traced back to Heraclitus and, and Socrates and, and Plato and Aristotle and Cicero and these guys. How many, just out of curiosity, we have any uh, uh, philosophy minors or philosophy majors in the room that you studied philosophy? Okay, a few sprinkled throughout here. There are a few in the early service as well. Uh, then you would have read and you would be very familiar with these people. So the the George Washington of Greek philosophy, the founding father, if you will, was this guy named Heraclitus. Heraclitus said, said a lot of stuff, but he argued that there was one thing, and I'm paraphrasing, but he argued that there was one thing that held everything together, that gave uh, life meaning, that gave life value, that gave life purpose, and the most important thing, the key that unlocked everything else to give us understanding was the logos or the word. Was, was what Heraclitus would have said. And somewhere in the confusion of Greek philosophy, there was this, 
this yearning or this looking for that which was going to help them understand, that which was going to bring meaning and value and purpose to life, that, that which would unlock everything else. And, and John kind of uses this as leverage straight out of the gate. And he says, I want to introduce you to the one that holds everything together. I want to introduce you to, you, you know the word who gives life value and meaning and purpose. And you know that who unlocks everything. And you're searching for this. Let me tell you, I've found it. I found him. I know the word in the beginning was the word. He's going to walk us through that Jesus is actually that word. Jesus is the one who will unlock all of life and, and will help you understand it all that what we're searching for deep down is actually found in Jesus Christ. Now he says, okay, here's a title, but he also gives us technically, I guess you could say, the birthday of Jesus or that he didn't in fact have a birthday. And John says that Jesus, the word, was in the beginning. Now th this, frankly, is a bit mind-bending, but John is saying, my best friend is eternal, is what he's saying. That you, you want to know his birthday? Go back to the beginning, trace it back as far as you can in your imagination, and there you will still find the word. There you will still find Jesus. That there is Jesus, eternal God, in the beginning. Matthew starts with the ancestors of Jesus and traces it back to Abraham. Mark starts with the prophets that testified of Jesus. Luke starts with the birth of Jesus. But John is going to show us that Jesus does not begin in a manger. Jesus did not begin with, with the history of the Jewish people and Abraham nor the prophets. That Jesus was around long before that. And if you try to get Jesus a birthday cake and put the candles on there, it, it won't work out because there's not enough room. Jesus has existed and Jesus is eternal. What he's arguing is what he's going to say very plainly in a few moments is that Jesus was the, the eternal creator God of everything. That if you're looking for creator, you're looking for eternality, you're looking for, for life, it's there inside of Jesus. And, and here is Jesus, the Word, in the beginning. Th this is something that is, that is just, it, it'll almost perplex you to try to think about and wrap your head around what theologians have called the uncaused cause, who caused everything is Jesus. Now this is frankly outside the point of, of what John's saying here, but I will mention this, that he who is in the beginning does love to offer new beginnings to others. I'm well aware that January of every year is a time where those who maybe are Christian or have been in church uh, are looking to kind of renew their commitment to, uh, to reading their Bible or to going to church or to praying or spiritual disciplines or, or, or living for Jesus, which is a great thing, and I applaud you for it. And Jesus offers new beginnings to you over and over and over. January is a time where people who maybe have been away from church come back to church. Every year this happens in churches all around, and our church is no exception. So if you're looking for a new beginning, great. He who was in the beginning will offer you one, and you can find that today, which is fantastic. But here's what John says. Here is the word, the Logos. Here is his birthday. Here's his place of residence. In the beginning was the word, and the word was where? With God. Not only has Jesus always existed, but he's existed in fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. John is pressing into the idea of the Trinity because next up he's going to say, in the word was God. Not just some sort of created being that was with God, not just an angel that was with God, but here he was with God and he... The skeptics would say that this was added later, that John never claimed this, John would know, that John would know this wasn't true, but nothing could be further from the truth. This is, this is what Jesus emphatically claimed over and over and over again. So much so that people understood he was saying he was God and they got really mad and called him blasphemous and they killed him because of it. 
This is something that, that the Bible says over and over and over that John now is crying out and repeating that basically I was friends with God. That he took on flesh and I walked with him, I talked with him, I ate with him, I communed with him. Now generally, when you get to know someone and you get closer to them, there is, there is a great divide where eventually you get close enough to that person that you see behind the curtain that's been up in their life and you realize that there's, there's a backstage to this person's life, there's an underbelly, there's something here that isn't as great as I thought. Anyone, you ever experienced this? If you've been married, you've experienced this. I know you have. Perhaps you experienced it a little bit in dating where, you know, everything was grand and great and, and butterflies and kisses and it was wonderful. But then they revealed to you what they had been waiting, kind of when's the time that I need to let them know this? Or you had to reveal to them this and all of a sudden there are a few of you who were scared it would be diminished and they'd run from you, right? We've been through this process. But you can, you can bank on it when you get married, the idealized image of your spouse suddenly comes tumbling down, Right? This happens. Why? Because the closer we get to people humanly, the more we see their flaws. Now, you can get a little bit closer at the beginning and not, and not pick up on some of those flaws, but eventually you'll see that. It'll be there. It'll be apparent. And John says, I walked with him. I talked with him. I lived with him. I ate with him 24-7. I was around Jesus for years straight. I watched him die. I watched him raise. I watched him ascend. I'm telling you, as his best friend, when he said he was God and he was eternal, I know that sounds audacious. I know that's a big claim. But I'm telling you, I believe it. Like, I, I'm telling you that that was true. That this was God in the flesh. It wasn't just another man that Jesus was with God in the beginning and he, he was God. He is God. And then he says this. Does Jesus have any sort of prior work experience in his profile? Sure enough, he does. Verse 3. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. He says it both in the positive and the negative. All things were made by him. Positive. Without him, there wasn't anything made that was made. That's in the negative. It's saying the same thing. He made it all. His, his prior work experience on his resume is creator. That, that, that's it. He's coming as savior and redeemer right now. But bef before that, you know, he, he's been creator. He made it all. He, he made everything in the world. Now, what do we mean by made? Let me see if I can illustrate this. Just this week, uh, they're in here. That I hate to embarrass you, Gary, Gary and Elaine Waddell, but they, Gary and Elaine gave my wife and I uh, a bag. It was, it was basically a pre-made meal that they gave to our family unexpectedly. And Gary and Elaine, thank you. That was a blessing. I see Gary. I don't know where Elaine is. But it was, it was an awesome blessing on Friday. I took it home after work and I uh, gave it to my wife. She said, let's just eat this for dinner. I said, great, let's eat this for dinner. So there we had some bread. There were some brownies in there. There was some venison soup in there. It was fantastic. And Friday night for dinner, I made venison soup. I took it out, I poured it in a bowl, I put it in the microwave, and ta-da, I made venison soup. You say, no, you didn't make venison soup. Elaine, or maybe it was Gary, I'm not sure, I assume Elaine. Elaine made venison soup. Well, really, Elaine didn't even make venison soup. E Elaine arranged some, uh, rearranged some uh, ingredients to, to be venison soup, but she didn't make anything technically. She took already existing material and put it together in such a way that it was palatable to my taste buds. She did not create it. That was previously created by a creator. And when John is saying that Jesus made all things and there's nothing that was made that, that was without him, that he, was, he, he did it all, what he's saying is that he is the uncaused cause. He is the creator. It, with, 
there was nothing and he spoke and there was something that this is altogether different than you making a DiGiorno pizza or me making venison soup. This is Jesus as creator God. This is exactly what Paul would say in Colossians. Paul says of Jesus, all things were by him were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things and by him all things consist. What the Greeks were looking for, this, this logos, this word that held everything together, that made it consist, that made it all work. John says, I know who that is. He was in the beginning. He's God. He made everything. He's creator. And in verse 14 of John, we'll find that the word became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that Jesus is creator. You say, oh, okay, great. I'm a Christian. I know that. Yawn. What's next? Not so fast. Not so fast. If this is true, so if you don't believe that, then I would encourage you to examine this and find out if it, if it is true and believe. If you do believe this and you would say, I'm Christian, then who's more qualified to run your life? You or Jesus? All right, Let, let's not escape the implication here. Let's not just tip our hat to theology and say, oh, that's cool, bye. No, who's more qualified to run your life, you or Jesus? Well, if Jesus is more qualified, you're, you're not talking, that's fine. You drank decaf this morning, whatever. If, if Jesus is more qualified to run your life, who is running your life? All right? Who is in control? You say, well, he has mostly control. No, I'm pretty sure that if you're eternal creator God, you don't get most of, of the creation. That's not the way it's supposed to go. Who, who actually has the range? Well, my, my situation's unique. So unique that the creator of the universe doesn't get it? Like you're going you're gonna to befuddle him? You're gonna, he's going to scratch his head and not know what to do with you? Well, no, you don't understand. Well, I do understand. I do. What you say you believe and what you actually believe, there's a gap in between those. You're not, you're not living as though you believe that. And to be honest and put the spotlight on myself, nor do I sometimes. Nor do I sometimes. But this means if this is true and you believe this, then you naturally say, Jesus, here's my life. Control, reigns, have at it. You're in the driver's seat. Henry Ford, I read, uh, had a machine that he could not figure out at, uh, at Ford Motor Company. And he hired this man. His name was Charlie. But he, the man was known as the, the machine wizard. And he hired him to come fix his machine that they just could not get going. So the machine wizard, the story goes, came in, he looked around and, and kind of examined it for a little bit. And then he began to, as Ford would call it, tinker for just a few minutes. It was a short experience. And what, you know, it like, like he was a wizard, like magically this thing just up and running again and he fixed it. So he thanked him, he said bye. And a couple days later, he sent him a bill and the bill was for $10,000. And Ford was a bit incredulous at this $10,000 bill. So he, he asked Charlie, he said, Charlie, I mean, I'm grateful for your, for your help here, but, but don't you think $10,000 is a little st steep for just some, some tinkering? And Charlie said, you know what? The tinkering was $10, but knowing where to tinker was $9,990. <laughs> and when, when you come to Jesus, okay, if, if Jesus is who John says he is, when you come to him, you have to understand that he knows you, that he made you, he knows where to tinker, he knows how to, how to make life run best, and as such, when you surrender control to him, you're doing yourself a favor. You're not doing him a favor, you're doing yourself a favor. When you say, I will allow you control, and he will tinker, 
And that's not always pleasant. I'll be honest. It's not always fun. Sometimes it's a little painful when you realize you have these idols and these things that you're attached to and you put your hope in all the wrong places and that begins to go away and it feels a little bit scary, honestly, to feel like, what do I stand on now? But you go back to Jesus and you find out that there is a life and there is something beautiful there if you'll give him control because he is who John says he is. He's the word. In the beginning with God was God and he made everything. Now John's going to switch and he's going to go kind of to, to this description of Jesus. He's going to call him the light. Look in verse number four. In him was life. In who? Jesus. And the life that was in him was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. If you're reading a, a different version than the King James Version, it may say that the darkness uh, 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 didn't, o- or didn't overcome the light. Now, I don't have time for an essay on that, but I think that King James has, has the accurate rending here, rendering here. That John says in Jesus, in the Word, there's life. And this life was the light of men. And it came to the darkness, to men, and that the darkness didn't comprehend it and didn't understand it. What does this mean? Well, it's a lot. But I think what it primarily teaches us is that light does not come from within us. This is saying that the light that we need, and we oftentimes will categorize our world light and darkness. This is a common thing to see in themes of movies or in books or those sorts of things that, that light overcomes darkness. And this debunks the common myth that the light is inside of us, that our light will fix the world, that we can alleviate people's struggles, that, that we have the answer to the questions that plague us, that we can build a world where love and equity prevail and with the right education or the right vision or the right therapy or whatever it may be, we, we, can, we can make it right. If you had a Christmas musical, you know we touched on this theme with that great kind of Christmas passage from Isaiah 9 that we, we hear sung and read around Christmas time where Isaiah 9, 6 tells us that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. It's this beautiful Christmas passage. But it's preceded just a couple verses prior in Isaiah 9-2 saying that the people that dwell in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. The humanity at large and even religion at large looks to itself as the answer. And depending on on your background, you may look to education, you may look to science, you may look to technology, you may look to the government, you may look to philosophy, you may look to medicine. You can look to a lot of different things to try to produce the light inside of yourself, but it all shares the same basic assumption that the light is inside of us and that there is darkness, but we can overcome it with our own intellect and our own innovation, that we can do this. But that's not at all what John says. What John says is that in Jesus is life and in Jesus is light. And the message of Jesus is that you don't have the light inside of yourself to fix yourself or to fix others, but that you need a light from the outside to come upon you. That you actually need to receive that light. John will go on to say that he says it in this way, that they didn't comprehend it. Here in just a few moments, we'll see that he says that they didn't know him or that they rejected him. That the light came and that people did not have a pleasant reaction to the light. You say, why did they do this? Well, he will tell us in John 3, just a couple chapters later, exactly why people did not comprehend, did not want, rejected the light of Jesus. He says very plainly that light 
came into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. He says some of what happened in Jesus, a lot of what happened in Jesus, is that the light came and men scattered like cockroaches and preferred their darkness and hid in their corners and wanted to hang on to their sin and said, I want to do it my way. I love my addictions. I love my anger. I love whatever it is. I'm going to hang on to this and I'm going to squeeze it for all it's worth. And I don't want to come in a place where I, where I learn that that is not okay, that that was wrong, that, that, that Jesus had to die for me. I'm that bad. He died for me. That men didn't want that. They, they, weren't, they weren't just like, yeah, bring that on. That, that's a great message. Some were, but most were not. He says, the light, Jesus comes, and here's what happens. Now, he's going to break for a moment and give us a quick commercial about John the Baptist. And this, this is important that he does this. Because he's going to set forth someone who would have been viewed as highly spiritual. That if there was someone in the first century outside of Jesus, they would have looked at and said, well, well there's someone who has light inside of themselves. Here's someone that, that is good. Look at all the goodness in John the Baptist. Look at how righteous he was. Look at how he dedicated himself to the Lord from his birth all the way on up. Look at his pedigree. Look at, look at all the religiosity. Look at John the Baptist. He's great. And, and John, the, the author, is going to go to great lengths to say, even in someone who is spiritually significant, even in someone who's a spiritual leader, even in him, he's not the light. He's just reflecting the light. That, that all he's doing is showing you Jesus. He's, 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 he's an imitation. If you just look to him, don't do that. So let's read it. Here's what he says. Verse number six. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's a cool thing. He was sent from God. Like he had a mission from God on his life. You can read about that in Luke 2. So here's this guy, John the Baptist, sent from God. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. So what he's saying is John came to bear witness to Jesus so that people would turn to Jesus and people would believe on Jesus. John did not come to build his own tribe. John did not come to draw people to himself and say that I'm good, I'm righteous, I'm great. No, it was meant to point him to Jesus. Verse number eight, he, John, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That Jesus was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. It's plain as day. Plain as day. Pick a great spiritual leader. Pick whoever you want. Whoever you view as, as spiritual, Pope, Billy Graham, John the Baptist, Peter, I don't care. Pick whoever you want. Your grandma? He's saying the light is not in them. You bear witness to the light. Jesus is the light. All we do is reflect him. Understand, don't get this discombobulated. Understand that Jesus is where, where he is, and we're down here. Creator, creation. Shepherd, sheep. He's the light. We just reflect it. That's it. He's trying to elevate Jesus and make sure that we don't, we don't get caught up in man worship and trying to, trying to follow the teachings of men and those who know just follow Jesus is what he's saying. Then he says this, some of the saddest verses in all the Bible, verse 10 and 11. He, Jesus, was in the world and the world was made by him. In case that wasn't clear earlier, let me just repeat it. He made it all and the world knew him not. Then, this is a step further, it's worse, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. He came into the world he created, he lived among them, and they didn't even know him. 
They didn't even recognize him. But then some actually did, and when they did, they did not receive him. They rejected him. That creation murders the creator. That, that's the story of Jesus. That he steps into the flesh, and he's not received, but he receives wrath and hatred. By and large, he had disciples who followed him, and his message went on. But by and large, they rejected him. Let me see if I can give you two anecdotes to... to make this humorous and drive the point home. I grew up in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Most of you would know that. And I had uh, one church there my whole 18 years. I went off to college to Arkansas when I was 17, technically, I guess. But uh, my first 17, 18 years of life, I was there in that church. Shawnee was, was the name of the church. And I had one pastor, uh, Pastor Mattingly. We called him Brother Lonnie is what he preferred to go by. It's just what we called him. And uh, Brother Lonnie was the pastor there for 37 years. I got kind of the, the, the back end of his pastorate. The first 20 years I was, I was not there. But uh, he pastored for 37 years, which was amazing. A little itty bitty church that grew into a, a, a really good sized church and an amazing man. Uh, he, a couple years after I left, he uh, decided that he was getting up in years and that it was time to give the reins over to someone younger who he had kind of been grooming. So he did that. Uh, that guy served for eight years and about a year and a half ago, they actually got another pastor. So there's been a couple pastors since I've been gone. Uh, but, but Brother Lonnie was, was there, built a lot of buildings, uh, similar to Harvest in terms of kind of got a campus and building and built some other stuff and those sorts of things. In a weird series of events, my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law my wife's sister and her husband were hired by my home church that I grew up in. And he's administrating their school and he's working there, which is strange to me that uh, my brother-in-law who knew nothing of my home church is hired by my home church. And now my wife's family worships with my family at the same church on Sunday, which is, which is weird and cool actually, because now we go see family, we get to see her family as well. Some, But here's, here's the the moral of the story. My brother-in-law recently had painted a few things and done a few things in their school. And he walked into kind of the school wing one day and he saw this older man kind of standing, walking around, opening up doors, looking inside of classrooms and thought, this is strange. There's no one else here. Why is this rando walking around, opening up stuff and looking in stuff. What? So he approached him sweetly and said, hey, you know, can I, can I help you? Are you looking for something? And the reply was, I really like the color on the walls and, and kind of what you've done. And yeah, thanks. Me too. We, we thought we chose good ones. You know, can I help you? Can I give you a tour of the place? Not realizing, you know where this is going, not realizing it's, it's Brother Lonnie, Pastor Madeline, the guy who built the buildings or led the charge to build the buildings, the guy who knows every nook and cranny, the guy who served as pastor here for 37 years. He, did, he didn't know him. And, and, and he finally eventually told him, hey, I'm Pastor Mattingly, and my brother-in-law, of course, feels like an idiot. Like, here I am treating this, this guy who pastored here for so long as a guest, as a visitor. I don't recognize him. But he, once he recognized him, he received him. He, he said, oh, you know, show yourself around. You want the keys? What do you need? You know, go, go have a good time. He received him. So what John is saying is, is both that Jesus came, and at first they don't recognize him. They don't see that this is the creator stepping into creation. Of course, the shepherds do and the wise men do and Mary does. But, but as a whole, most people don't. But not only do they not recognize him, when they do recognize him, they don't do like my brother-in-law and receive him, they reject him. They eventually realize, oh, here's who, this is who he says he is, and they decide, no, we'll kill you. Now, I recently, in a much smaller way, learned what it was like 
to have your own reject you. Friday night, I was at home wrestling with my children, and we were having fun. I don't know if you wrestle in your house, but in our house growing up, that was a lot of fun. We did, and so we, we do that a lot. So I'm wrestling with my kids, and as I often do, I kind of, I decide that I'm going to start to play like uh, possum, basically. I'm just going to lay there and not do anything. And I know that it'll kind of irritate my oldest a little bit. It'll poke me in, and Daddy, wake up, and this, and it'll, you know, he'll, eventually I'm laying on the ground, and they're jumping on me and pinching me and trying to get me to wake up, and I'm trying to, to lay there and endure their torture. Eventually, my oldest son decides, you know what, this is a job too big for me. I have to go enlist the help of mom. So I'm, I'm thinking, mom's going to come into the room, and she's going to, you know, she's going to be on my team. Like, oh, you know, well, you got to figure it out, Brennan, something like that. But no, she does not. She decides to be on Brennan's team, and she begins to, to tickle me, because I'm a very ticklish person, and I, I can't stand to be tickled. So she knows I will wake up immediately if this happens. So she, she pulls this uh, out of her bag of tricks, and tickle. I wake up, we're laughing, we're having a good time. So I stand up, and I'm kind of, I'm not wrestling with my wife, but we're kind of uh, messing with each other, and she's trying to tickle me, and I'm trying to get her away. And my oldest son, who's four and a half, perceives this as mom and dad are fighting. And we're, we're, we were laughing. We're having a great time. No one's yelling. It was a great time. But he perceives this as they're fighting. And guess whose team he wanted to be on? Not mine, okay? Not mine. I did not realize this in the moment, but this, this is not a joke. He ran behind me and he grabbed my right leg and he decided that he was going to bite the back of my right leg as hard as he could. I'm not talking like, ouch, you bit me. I'm talking like he went T-Rex on my leg. And it's not, I've, there's a piece of hamstring still in his teeth today. If you, if you see him, it's like he bit me. I mean, like, bruised, bleeding down my leg. I mean, like, took a chunk out of the back of my leg. So much, I fall on the ground, and I'm part, like, I'm part trying to figure out what just happened and why I had this pain. I'm, I'm part of, uh, realizing it and kind of proud that he defended his mother. I'm part laughing at the situation because it's comical, but I'm part, like, in a lot of pain and angry at this. And the prevailing thought for like two straight days was, I cannot believe my own child attacked me and he, and he, and he bit me like in a, in a really, really aggressive way. Like that's my own, that's my flesh and blood. Like I gave you life, right? Why would you do this to me? And in a very similar way, what John is saying is that Jesus came. He created. It's his own. He made all things. He gives life. He sustains all life. He comes into his own, and they not just don't recognize him, but when they do recognize him, they kill him. Like in a, in a much grander scale than my child biting me, creation murders the creator. And they put him on a cross. But God knew from the get-go that this would happen. This was part of the redemption plan, but John says, here's what, here's what happens. The light was by and large rejected, but in case you think it ends on a, on a pessimistic note, it does not. John gives us two of the most hopeful verses in all of the Bible. He immediately follows it up with this theme of Jesus not just being the light, but being the life. And he's going to say that Jesus alone is the light bearer. You just reflect him. He, he is the light bearer, but Jesus alone is the life giver. And we'll end with these two verses, verse 12 and 13. So he wasn't recognized. He was rejected, but verse 12, but as many as received him. There were those that did not receive him, but then there were those that did receive him. To them, 
gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, this has this idea of life being produced, which were born or life was produced in them, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. This wasn't, this wasn't a human endeavor, but of God. What John says is the message that he wants to communicate through the whole book that those that did not reject, those that did not uh, stiff-arm him, those that did not say, no, I don't believe, I reject you, those that believe, those that receive, to those people actually, they are born, they are given life of God, and as such they are born into the family of God, can call themselves sons or daughters of God, that they're adopted into the family, and that they are given life by the life giver because of what they choose to do with Jesus. John says that Jesus is he's not just the Logos, he's not just the light, but he actually is the life. This teaches us that what you do with Jesus is a matter of life and death. It's that big. At least that's what John claims. It's that big. What you do with him is a matter of life and death. Some reject, some receive. But Jesus came to bring you into the family. He came to give you life. He, he came to bring adoption to you so that you could be a son of God. As creator, he has already given you physical life. But as redeemer and savior, he offers you spiritual life and he offers you eternal life if you believe in him. And this is precisely where religion, all other religions, and the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, depart from each other. Because religion says, feed your brother, forgive the poor, do good, be a better person. And then you and God can be close. Then you can know him. Then you can have merit with him. Then you can have some sort of standing with him. But the good news of Jesus that John will pound over and over and over again is that this is not religion. This is the gospel of Jesus. And this is Jesus saying, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Not clean yourself up and then present yourself to me and then, we'll, and then we'll be okay. But come if you're wearied, if you're tired, if you're dirty, if you're sinful, if you're burdened. Come to me just as you are. You don't have to change. Come to me. I will receive you if you will receive me. And will his life change you and will he conform you to his image? You bet he will. But he welcomes you with your problems and with your guilt and with your shame, with all the rest of it, to come to him and to receive him. And this is, this is only where true spiritual life occurs. If you don't do it this way, and it's not through belief in receiving Jesus, all you do is trade your chains. All you do is trade your addiction or your rage or your problems for the willpower of your re religious accomplishments. And that's just a different set of chains. But through Jesus, it's, it's not religion. It's life. It's life. And he says, I will give you that life if you will believe and receive. And this morning I will tell you if, you, if you know Jesus, then he desires to make you more like him so that you can do life his way, which is the most beautiful way that it can be done. And if you've come to Jesus, I hope you've experienced this, where life before Jesus was not that grand, and then all of a sudden there was something that was altogether different. The lights turned on. If you have not come to Jesus, but you know some people that have, and you have friends or family that have, and you've scratched your head and said, they're a different person. Well, according to John, that should happen because a life is produced inside of them, and, and that is different. And John is saying very clearly, 
Come to Jesus. He invites you and he accepts you. He's not in love with a future version of you. It's not you 2.0. What he's looking for. It's, it's not, I'll clean myself up, I'll get my act together, but, but right now I bother God and he doesn't want anything to do with me. I'm in, I'm in, time, I'm in time out right now. Four or five years from now, me and, me and God will be real close when I get it all figured out, but, but I gotta go away. I have too many issues to be in his throne room right now. No, that's religion, that's not Jesus. Jesus says, come to me just as you are, come now. Believe and receive, I offer life. I'll leave you with a quote from Patrick Henry, the man who, the patriot who said, give me liberty or give me death. If you know American history, I think this quote is better than give me liberty or give me death. Henry said, the most cherished possession that I could leave you is my faith in Jesus Christ. For if you have him, but no other possessions, you can be happy. But without him, even if you have all other possessions, you'll never be happy. Henry said, I found Jesus and I found life and that's what I want to leave to you. If you've never found Jesus, I hope today, literally right now, this moment that you will because he's life and he wants to give it to you.